Now, we're going to carry on in John's Gospel this morning. We're coming to a very famous occasion, the only miracle, actually, that happens in all four Gospels, that all four Gospels record, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. It's John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, maybe do turn to that, but come up to the, on the screen in a moment. John chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into a mountain by himself. In a sense, before I start the sermon proper, I just want to notice one little thing about this. As I said, this is the only miracle in all four Gospels. Um, one reason is that the message it teaches us about who Jesus is is really important, and we'll get to that in a moment. But there may be one other reason, and that is, in a sense, that for the early readers of the Gospel, it was a piece of evidence showing the Gospel was true, the kind of evidence you can have inside a text. So it says in verse 10 that the crowd had 5,000 men. And obviously in the Jewish way of counting it, it does say men. The the rest of the crowd isn't even counted. So we're talking 15,000 people plus. And scholars tell us they're fairly sure that the Gospels were around in places like Galilee and Israel uh, within 40 years at most of Jesus' death. People, in other words, were still alive who remembered these things when the Gospels came to those villages around the Sea of Galilee and other places. Now, if this hadn't happened, imagine someone turning up with a book and saying, I want to tell you about this amazing guy, Jesus. You know, uh, 40 years ago, he fed 15,000 people here. 
It's a small village. People don't move around much. If that hadn't happened, you'd probably be saying, uh, Gran, why didn't you mention that to us before? Are you sure that happened? Or, you know, parents, you, you were kids then. Is that, is that true? In other words, it's the kind of thing that's in the gospel because 15,000 people are being said to be witnesses. If this was made up, it would be a really stupid thing to put in the gospel. Really stupid. If this was some kind of myth they'd put together about Jesus, people in Palestine would have been writing around the empire saying, this is tosh. You know, this is just the most complete nonsense. We, we were there 40 years ago. None of this happened. But we've got no record of ever, anyone ever doing that. In other words, this is put in the gospel as a reminder that this stuff is real. That said, let's get on with the, the substance of it. Jesus teaches us to trust, verses 5 to 11, and Jesus gives us life, 11 to 15. So Jesus and his disciples cross across the Sea of Galilee, and a huge crowd follows them, absolutely massive, because they've seen the miracles he's done. Um, they've seen, and they want to see more. This is like a, you know, a crowd of thrill seekers. It's like a massive rock concert. And Jesus goes up on a mountainside somewhere a bit higher where they can hear him teach, and he sits down. And he lifts his eyes up, and he sees them, and he cares about these people. This is a big crowd, far out in the wilderness, long way from Mazda, long way from McDonald's, 40-degree heat. They're going to be hungry by the time they get home. And so he asks Philip, where shall we buy bread for the people to eat? Now, the Gospels tell us Philip's a local boy. He's from Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee. He's a good person to ask where the nearest shop is. Well, obviously, John lets us in on the question, immediate, on, the, on the secret, immediately. He asked this only to test him. Now, it's important we realise from the beginning, this test is not a school exam. You know, Philip is going to fail hard in a moment, and he doesn't get chucked out of the class. No, this, this test is to make Philip realise and think about what he thinks about Jesus and realise when he sees something quite different happen in a moment, Jesus is far bigger than he thought and he can put far more faith in him than he realised. Jesus is saying, think hard about this situation, Philip, because you don't, you don't get it yet and I want to help you to get it. Philip answers, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. You know, why are you asking us where we can buy things, where even if we emptied all the shops in the whole area, uh, even if we had that much money, we just couldn't afford this. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, there's another local boy, he chips in and says, uh, well, there's a, a little boy with his lunch here, five small barley loaves, two little fish. That sounds like five little pita breads, not a big loaf of Warburton's. Made out of barley. That's the cheap grain that you feed to horses and poor people. Just like they used to say about oats. I think, didn't they say uh, in, in, in England they feed oats to horses and in Scotland to people? Same sort of idea. I thought about that when I had my porridge this morning. And he's got a couple of sardines to go with him. In other words, this is some poor kid's lunch. Not particularly generous, not particularly amazing. And Andrew says, how far will that go among so many? 
And that's when Jesus says, make the people sit down. The disciples need to go around telling everyone to sit down because it's picnic time. And then Jesus took the loaves, he takes the boys' lunch, and he gives thanks. Now, if the story stops here, of course, this would be the story of Jesus taking a small boy's lunch. It really is a test. It's a test for the disciples. It's a test for that small boy giving up his lunch. He's asking, do you realize, disciples, that you have absolutely no way of solving this problem? You know, there's no way you can feed this lot. You still have to ask them to sit down. You need to step out. You know, you're going to have to take a risk here. But even though you can't do it, I can. Do you really realize you need me to t sort out this problem? But you can also trust me to sort out this problem. And that gets to one of the key things this passage is teaching us. There are just things, some things, that we cannot do on our own. You know, maybe you felt that recently in family life or relationships. There are things you realize, I just can't do this by myself. You know, maybe you haven't, maybe you're one of those lucky people who glides through life keeping th things together and life together pretty well. But either way, Jesus' question cuts through and says, whichever group you're in, Sometimes I will ask you to do things that you really feel and think you just can't do. And when it comes back to it, we've just seen in the children's talk, all of us are in trouble. All of us are powerless to deal with what we've done wrong and the punishment that's facing us. You know, that, that's a, the first step of AA's 12-step program is uh, to admit that you're powerless. It is, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And without that, without first admitting that you can't do anything about it, you can't change. Jesus is bringing the disciples to realize they are powerless to deal with this problem. As we said, the children's talk should make us realize our own powerless. Should make us come to God and say, help, we, we need you. We don't measure up. We don't measure up to the law you've given us. We don't measure up to the high calling you give a place in our lives. You, we don't love you in the way we should. We don't love people. And we are in trouble. And if we've been trying to deal with our sin and our failure and weakness all on our own, that will either make us very depressed or it'll make us give up. So it's a wake-up call. Admit we can't and come to him. Perhaps when we hear sermons or read the Bible and listen to what is expected of a Christian in the Christian life, we simply feel guilty. Well, when, when we do feel that guilt, it's not. We should never stay there. If we feel guilty like that, it's a sign, it's a pointer, it's an encouragement from Jesus to say, okay, come to me and I will deal with that guilt. I will help when you cannot. I will forgive when you cannot. Or maybe it's simpler things. Maybe you're at home and you can't control your worry or your anxiety or your anger. Jesus says, come to me. And you need to say, I'm powerless and I need your help. In other words, this is to bring us to Jesus. This test, though, has even more to teach us as Christians and as a church. Because learning about our powerlessness isn't just about 
the sort of fundamentals of the Christian life. It also teaches us about Christian life and service. Jesus is about to do an extraordinary miracle, isn't it? Anyway, it would have been utterly amazing to have been there. But he chooses to do what he didn't need to do, to draw in his disciples to help him. Even the little boy gets to help. You know, if you can feed 15,000 people from five pita breads, you don't really need the pita breads of some small boy. But this story would be very different if Jesus just said, Philip, Andrew, little boy, watch this. Instead, he gives them a place in it. So that, that little boy went home at the end of the day and he could tell his mum and his dad, I helped Jesus do an incredible miracle. I mean, none of the miraculous bits, but still. Jesus did something amazing with my lunch. He gives that little boy and those disciples a place in serving him. That's what serving in church is. You know, you look at the challenge facing any church. How can we bring people to know Jesus out of a secular world like ours? How can we reach out? How can we really make a difference in a place like Knightswood? And we think, well, we can't. There aren't very many of us. We're just normal people. What would it take to turn a place like Knightswood around? Well, a lot more than us. What would it take to really fill this building again? Well, a lot more than us. But when, like that little boy, we take the basics of what we can do to Jesus, he does far more with that than we ever expect. Jesus in the New Testament does call us to serve him. He does call us to work for him. He calls us, whether that's little practical things in the church or, the, the, in a sense, the deeper work of encouraging one another and calling people to trust him, to talk of the gospel to our friends and relatives. He calls us to obey in that, not because he needs us. You know, he's better at that kind of thing than we are. I think you'll agree. He calls because we get, just like Philip and Andrew, to grow in our faith when we join him in it. We get to service, whatever it is, our few prayers, our words about the gospel to our friends, or inviting relatives to church, or practical service helping in the church's work. And through it, he teaches us to trust his power. And at the same time, works through it and does far more than we could ever expect. So when we look out at Knightswood and we see the many empty lives, the many people who don't know Jesus, the many people who have never heard why Jesus came, Jesus asks us, just like he asked Philip and Andrew, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And we're going to reply, if we had a hundred highly trained missionaries based in a church full of young people with an amazing praise band, it wouldn't be enough to reach a tenth of the people in Knightswood. But maybe part of us will answer like Philip. We'll say, I'll, I'll tell my daughter about what Jesus has done for me and maybe talk about the hope I have in Christ with a few friends I see each week. 
that's not much. How far will that go among so many? <laughs> not very far. But that, of course, is when Jesus says, tell the people to sit down. And he does something wonderful with our obedience. Because Jesus is the one who gives life. He calls us to obey. And he gives life when we do it. This is really the heart of what the passage is about. I'm going to say less than I've just said, because we'll be coming back to the main point when Jesus himself explains the miracle uh, from verse 25 onwards. But some key points from this. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Those little bits of pita bread, that bread and fish, is enough for everyone to eat and be satisfied. All 15,000 full, content stomachs. In fact, there's, there's more. The disciples go around with a basket, not, not some little thing that you might have on a table. Where the word uh, basket here in Greek is the word kofinos. You can probably guess what word we get from the word kofinos. Um, it's a big basket. A kind of you know, like plastic crate you might use around the house. There's so much, Jesus has turned that tiny amount into rich plenty. He provides richly and abundantly. He is the one who provides what we need. And Jesus wants us, sorry, John wants us to see something about this that the crowd spotted. If we, we go back to, to verse 4, um, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Uh, now what, why does that matter? Well, we, we know long before God had sent Moses to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And at the Passover, God used Moses to give them life and freedom. That's Exodus 12. And then, of course, Moses went up a mountainside in Exodus 19 to bring back teaching from God. Jesus goes up a mountainside here. You remember that when the people were hungry in the wilderness, Exodus 16, Moses prayed to God and provided them with bread from heaven. As much as they needed. Not quite as generous as Jesus here, but close. And then God tested them in the wilderness to grow their faith. That's the whole book of Numbers. And then, at the end of his life, Moses said, One day, God will send someone just like me. No more. A prophet, but not just any old prophet. A prophet like me who stands between you and God to bring you to him and to bring his power into your lives. And many prophets came in the Old Testament, but at the end of Deuteronomy it says, you know, there might have been other prophets, but since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, or who has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds Moses did. And the people here, they look at what Jesus has done, and they say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. And they're right. Jesus is going to say in the end of the chapter, in verses 28 to 34, Moses was just a picture of what I am. He was a pointer to the real thing of God rescuing you from slavery and bringing you to real everlasting life and providing everything you need for your, the journey through life. And more than that, when I give my body on the cross for the life of the world, I am the one who will give you life. Because Jesus is the one who knows God face to face, who stands between God and man, who, when we do evil, as Moses, as when the people of Israel did evil, stands between God and man and says, punish me in their place, just like Moses did. 
He is the one who brings freedom and life and hope and provision in the desert. Of course, the people then, instead of seeing their own powerlessness and coming to Jesus and saying, help us, they think, great, this is a way to power and plenty, a way to solve all our political problems. It's a way, in other words, to an easy life. So they intended to come and make him king by force. It's not why he'd come. And that asks us, you know, why, why are we here? Are we here because we want Jesus to give us an easy life? He doesn't promise that. But he does say, if deep down you know your powerlessness and your emptiness, I can provide everything you most deeply need. I can provide everlasting hope and life. I am, as he'll say in verse 35, the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In other words, come to me and I will provide everything you need. Let's pray. Lord, like the disciples, our faith is faltering and we need it to be probed and tested so that we can grow in faith. But we pray you will lift our eyes from our powerlessness, that we will see our powerlessness, but look more to you and your power, to your grace, to your love and your provision. We want to know you and your power and your satisfaction. Amen.